I can tell you our inspiration for Evergreen was 1960s jazz label records. We wanted to be that quirky, dynamic brand that brought you special talent, and we can nurture that special talent and grow them. That, that was the, that's, that's the business plan right there. And the fact that we have 115 podcasts, 85 of which are independent podcasters, trusting us enough to guard their show and to grow it is a very humbling experience and a very serious responsibility. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today's podcast is about none other than podcasting and the business of podcasting. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Michael D'Aloya, who is the CEO of Evergreen Podcasts, which is a media company based here in Cleveland that he has since transformed into a fast-growing podcast network with millions of downloads around the globe. Prior to Evergreen Podcasts, Michael served as the executive for technology development, more colloquially as the Texar for the city of Cleveland under Mayor Jane Campbell's administration, where he was responsible for economic development for technology startups, essentially helping to attract new technology companies to Cleveland and supporting the technology companies that are already here. Before stepping into City Hall, Michael was the co-founder and CFO of Blue Bridge Networks, a data storage company also based here in Cleveland. And on the side, Michael is a Cleveland history buff and author of Lost Cleveland, Lost Hotels of Cleveland, and Lost Department Stores of Cleveland, a series where he traces the cherished places in Cleveland that time, progress, and fashion have swept aside. We cover a variety of topics in this conversation here, spanning Michael's expansive experience, and I hope you all enjoy our conversation. So I was thinking this is going to be a pretty fun meta exploration of podcasts, kind of a, a podcast section of an episode where we will not only get to explore your personal background and an entrepreneurial journey, but the world and business of podcasts via podcasts. So this is, I've been looking forward to this one. It's like we're breaking the fourth wall, Jeffrey. You know what I'm saying? Like from the get-go. You know, we're talking about podcasts through a podcast. It's crazy. Yeah. So let's let's do it. Just to, to set a little bit of context, uh, now, that, now that we've broken the, the fourth wall, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to, before we talk about Evergreen and, and the business that, that you're building, kind of explore your, your path to that endeavor I know you've had this title of Texar for the, the city of Cleveland, and I, I'd right. love to just kind of preface with some context on entrepreneurship in Cleveland and how it is you've came, you came into that role and, and the kind of transformation you've seen in the Cleveland startup world over the last decade, what, what has transpired. Yeah, well, the transformation has been significant, and I'll, I'll reach back to that point. The Texar role was, that was a bizarre journey. I had been working for a number of um, investment banks and um, capital markets groups before I became the Texar. So, you know, I moved up to Cleveland to attend Case. Still not quite sure how I got into Case because I'm pretty sure I didn't apply, but somehow I got into the MBA school at Case. I, I moved up here and 
I, I immediately after I graduated, I joined National City Venture Capital as an analyst, reviewing stacks and stacks of deals. And they mostly gave me the really bad ones to test me what I thought <laughs> of the deal and the transaction and talk through it. And they were rough. They were like, you're completely wrong. This is why you're wrong. You got to look at these things. And, uh, and it was fantastic. And I reviewed everything from ginger farms to uh, radio station consolidation and everything in between. And soon thereafter, I, I got some uh, a rotation through National City's uh, investment bank, uh, their structured finance, which was essentially, essentially doing highly leveraged transactions and, and selling off that debt in the secondary market. Then I got recruited into Ernst & Young to help. I was in part of an internal M&A team going mm-hmm. around the globe, you know, buying other accountancies and consultancies. I was in my late 20s. It was fantastic being flown around the globe with an expense account. And again, I was learning more and more about deal flow. And it was my time at Ernst & Young. I got a partner out of the Akron office like, hey, I got this very troubled company. Why don't you take a peek if you don't mind? They could use an injection of young blood. And and it, it was the name of the company was Susan's Coffee and Tea. It was a coffee chain. And I ended up buying that company. It was a complete disaster. Generally, it was your first go. It was my second MBA. Everything I didn't learn in MBA school, I learned on the <laughs> job. You know, I bought a, a dog with fleas, with mange, and, you know, it, it croaked on me. And, Somehow I raised about $2.2 million through mostly people I recently met through my journeys at Ernst & Young in National City. And I felt very obligated to pay that stuff back. So you know, we, we had about 700000 I returned immediately in cash. And then that one five, this is the crazy part. I paid most of that one five back over the next 10, 15 years of my life. And a lot of the people I still connect with you know, when I'm looking at deals today, quite frankly, it was an unnecessary thing to do, but I felt morally obligated as my first deal to get everyone square, which which we did. And so from that jumping point of Susan's Coffee and Tea, I ended up at SS&G Financial in their capital markets group. And I was hired because this internet thing is going to be big and we don't have anyone who talks internet, like it has its own language. So I jumped on board and I, I had about... 45, 50 tech clients, mostly in startups. And so you're going from 99 to 2002, cradle to grave type stuff, raised over $100 million for these companies. At the time, the state of Ohio had a tax credit. So I, I maxed out like 40 million in tax credits to the state, doing all sorts of just crazy deals. And then when they, when they, went, when they went bankrupt, we we're doing like, you know, one-time S elections to get the cash out so they could get the... Uh, the losses back on because everyone was, of course, a Delaware C at the time. But it was during my time at Salt Seamus that I got invited to sit on a committee as Jane Campbell was running for mayor. She had been a county commissioner. She was running for mayor of Cleveland. And at the initial meeting, Chris Thompson, who was then the editor of Cranes Cleveland, and also we had a special tech site at the time called Crane Tech, which Chris started. Chris just set the agenda, man. He was like, Campbell needs a tech czar. She needs economic development for the technology trades. We need to fill downtown with technology. And he just went down. And I was sitting there in the back of my mind. I was like, that man, that's a job I would really love to have. That would be cool. <laughs> yeah, it would be. And so we started working with the Campbell campaign, this, this technology advisory group. 
as to how to improve City Hall, but even better, how to create an economic development framework, to use the, 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 the terminology, to build something special for the city of Cleveland and, and get us in the game in technology. In the interim period, as this campaign is going on, I left SSG to start a t- a, another tech company called Blue Bridge Networks, which is still downtown on Euclid and East 13th. We you know, raised about three and a half million dollars for that. Got some uh, Cisco capital, uh, which at the big at, at that time was just a big deal for Cleveland to get Cisco to come in and throw some cash around. And we were launching that. And as we were buying data centers out of bankruptcy, so this is post dot bomb era, mm-hmm. so 2002, 2003, Jane Campbell had won the election. I found myself on the front page of the plain dealer business section as one of five candidates for this job. None of the five candidates, of course, got the position, went to a guy named Tim Moran, who was really kind of like out of left field. Like he had done a startup, of a software startup in, in Puerto Rico. And as everyone knows, Puerto Rico is just the hot spot for software startups. And uh, so, he, but he got the gig and he was just, he was a really genuine, great guy who I think was a bit overwhelmed with the role. Nonetheless, we had launched Blue Bridge Networks. We had, had invited Mayor Campbell. She walked in and she was like, you know, I remember you from this committee. Tim had just left. Would mm-hmm. you like to interview for this job? And I was like, well, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a co-founder here. I have a job. But if you give me the role, I will take it. But I'm not going to interview. But if you want someone, I, I will be there for you and I will do it. And she kind of gave me this strange look like, who the hell are you to tell me you, you're going to take this role? Sure enough, the next day, her director of economic development gave me a ring. I interviewed. Crazy story. I'm in the interview with a bunch of staff members in the economic development group, the chief development officer, the chief of staff, who was Chris Renane at the time, who's now running for county executive. She fell asleep during the interview, Jane Campbell. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm hoping it wasn't because I was so boring, but rather she was just so tired trying to fix the woes of Cleveland. And I, and I got the role and uh, I took it. I just thought, well, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to really make your mark on Cleveland, Ohio. And I got the role. I leaped at it because I just knew this was going to be a game changer for me and hopefully a game changer for the city of Cleveland. And I just, it was one of the best roles I've ever had, quite frankly. I miss the rigor and the strain of working in politics terribly. And I'm glad I had that role. I, I did it for four years, two years with Campbell and two years with Jackson in his first term. And you know, short long story short, I mean, we we were able to move 35 tech companies into the city, about a thousand new jobs. And one of the things I'm really proud of is it laid the groundwork for the live, work, play environment that really Cleveland was originally built for. I mean, you lived in the city, you worked in your neighborhood, right? And you played in your neighborhood. And downtown was that perfect microcosm of entertainment, right? Food, plays, movies, sports, had the infrastructure for employment, and then you could live in a great downtown. I love downtown Cleveland. I lived downtown Cleveland for many years before I moved to Ohio City. And then when my wife and I got pregnant, evidently you have to leave Cleveland. So we moved out to Lakewood. I guess it's a rule that you got to leave, but we miss it terribly. We, we do want to get back. So it was just a monumental role for me. I, I the, the stress and the strain 
of doing something like that was, especially at that time where downtown Cleveland rolled up at four o'clock, five o'clock in the evening. It was desolate, uh, not a lot going on. So I'm always proud of what we did and accomplished there. And I hope it set the stage for, you know, my second and third act as an entrepreneur. It really was just to listen, to work for the city of Cleveland and to bleed for the city. The city has given so much to me. And that was just the biggest honor of my life uh, to work for the city of Cleveland. Yeah, it does seem like maybe one of the coolest jobs there. There is very, very fun. It was. It was. I, I hope, you know, if Bib wins the election, yeah, he asked me many months ago to write up uh, a playbook for technology economic development, which which I did. I sent it to him. And of course, he got he's he's never replied back, but at least he has the the mindset and the temperament. Like we we need to get back on track of having a point person for economic development in the technology trades. Now it wouldn't be me. It needs to be someone younger who's got the pulse of what's happening in Cleveland. And really, it, it should be a regional role, right? I mean, you should be talking with people in Akron. Lorraine, Illyria, Youngstown, to, to build a true ecosystem, which it could be. But I always advocate that for the region to succeed, you need Cleveland to be the point. And Cleveland has to be the strongest economic engine out there. I mean, you know, Akron's not going to pull out this region from any economic malaise, but Cleveland can. So that's what I would heavily suggest as as technology, economic development going forward. Yeah. Working towards the act two, if you will, uh, as you mentioned, what kind of inspired the, the personal transition back to the world of, of entrepreneurship coming, coming out of that? That's a good question. And I, after my two years with uh, Jackson, uh, they brought in a new economic development director and he was like, I'm going to give you two years to find a job. So essentially my days were numbered at the city because of a personnel change. And I didn't take slight and, and, and it probably took me a couple of weeks, but I, I ended up jumping off to join uh, Fit Technologies, which is one of the companies that I had recruited into the city. They were out in Elyria. We moved them into downtown Cleveland. They ended up taking two floors in the Idea Center building. The Idea Center building was one of my top projects as the techs are at the city of Cleveland. Nonetheless, I kind of got, yeah, I got pushed out of City Hall for you know, being too successful, essentially. And, uh, and there was some pressure from other organizations to get me out because the economic development played at the time was, well, we got to spread it around. You know, the state money is, you got to make it even between Lake County and Cuyahoga County, and, and uh, which is it's BS because Cuyahoga County, it's one of the top 30 economies within the United States. And so for, for me to say, oh, all right, I won't recruit this company and from LA here, I'll, they'll go to, no, they, they want to come to Cleveland. So it's getting a lot of pressure from outside groups. Like, you know, you're not playing, you're not, you're not playing the playbook. Now the city at the time had its own technology fund, which was very unique for a mid-market city like Cleveland to have. It was called the core cities tech fund one. And I was using that as a recruitment tool to get you know companies in. And that was starting to, to wind down. So those two things were, were, were put into play. I would have stayed longer had I had um, the invitation to just keep making things happen. But that, that wasn't the case. Let's uh, transition to, to Evergreen and, and this, this meta podcast of podcasts. 
<laughs> the meta moment. <laughs> the meta moment. So let's start with a brief overview of what Evergreen Podcast is. How, how would you describe the organization today? We are a network that's been built for the independent podcaster and to help that independent podcaster grow. I mean, that's essentially what we build it for. We do have our own original programming, but we're really geared for those who've got a successful podcast who are on their own. You've done this, Jeffrey. I mean, you, you're recording, you're editing, you're hosting, you're just, you know, you're distributing the podcast. Then you're doing the marketing, the social media. We take away all of that work for our podcasters. We just want them to do the show. Just get the show. We'll do, we'll handle all the rest, sales, marketing, social. So essentially they're outsourcing a great deal of the operations of that show to us. And we're really acting as their sales and marketing agent. Now, Evergreen didn't start off as Evergreen. As you know, in startups, you you pivot, you make changes. Yes, yes. I inherited the business, which makes this a really wild tale. I, I was looking for, I told my wife about six years ago, I wanted to be a CEO again of a company. I was a chief revenue officer of a business. I was trying to buy into that business. And after a lot of negotiations, they decided not to accept my my investment, which was a little awkward moment. And I got a call from a friend of mine, a gentleman named Steve Kalia, who now works at AWS. And he was like, hey, man, I just interviewed for this job as CEO. And I told him I'm not the guy. I told him I know the guy and you're the guy. So you need to call these people today. They're waiting for you to call. And so I called the founder of the business. Her name was Joan Andrews. And Joan had started a podcast network called uh, Front Porch People as a a callback to that time in history where everyone gathered around the radio. Her belief was, well, everyone's going to gather around the laptop or the computer and listen, listen to podcasts. So more folksy homespun content. They had a previous CEO who just could never get the company to launch. And she was looking for someone to come in and, and, and take over. And I, I accepted the role. I thought it was great. I've always wanted to be in the media business, even though I, I, my background is primarily capital markets and technology. And so she had been financing this through her family office. So it's a really unique blend of it's not founder driven, it's family office driven, which truth be told, a lot of VCs just do not know how to handle. There's a formula, as you know, out there in the world as you do your, your, your startup dollars to your Series A, to your mezzanine, Series B, Series C, and so forth. We haven't followed that script. It's been a little challenging for us, truth be told, to find a financial partner because the money is primarily coming through a family office. And then she's detached herself pretty much from day-to-day operations. So she's hired a management team. Now we're equity, we're shareholders. We've earned equity over a period of time. So it's this quirky mix of entrepreneurs who know how to take hold of a startup, but we're really working on behalf of a family office, which is a bit a bit unique. At, at what point did the did the transition uh, transpire and, and how has kind of the vision, if you will, changed uh, since then? Yeah, well, I took over January 15th of 2017 and the, the firm belief of Joan was like, front porch people is the thing. That's the route we want to go. Now that first year, 
we had four shows up. We had a very poor uh, production cadence. The website I inherited was a disaster. The tile art was, it was amateur. And we would all admit this now. I think that first year we did four shows and the entire year we did less than 18,000 downloads. Now to give some context, we're doing over 18,000 downloads a day at this point for the entire network. We're, we've grown. So about 18 months in, like I knew right away, Front Porch was probably not going to work. But she was so beholden to that dream, as a lot of founders and entrepreneurs are, that it took a while for us to convince her like, hey, it's not, this isn't working, but we have a plan. We have an idea and let's just test it out. So the second year, we actually grew downloads to 100,000. We had like 15 shows. And then we, that late, that second year, so 2018, November of 2018, we launched Evergreen. The first year of Evergreen was a million downloads for the year, which is pretty nominal relative to the entire industry. But for us, that was huge. Getting over that seven-figure mark was big. And it's just been a, a rocket ship ever since. You know, We've grown in terms of shows and downloads. Uh, we're hitting internal thresholds. I, I, this year, we've been about two or three months late and kind of hitting our thresholds. The whole Apple situation, as you know, that happened in May when Apple released their new update, it knocked out a lot of your uh, subscription base. And a lot of our bigger shows lost significant subscribers over that period of time. And it took us some time to get those back. But last year, we hit 4 million downloads. This year, we're on target for about 5.6, 5.8. Next year, I'm looking at almost you know between 10 and 12 million downloads. I, I want to drive a million downloads a month uh, through the network. And what the unintended consequence of opening up Evergreen as really the, I can tell you our inspiration for Evergreen was 1960s jazz label records. We wanted to be that quirky, dynamic brand that brought you special talent and we can nurture that special talent and grow them. That, that was the, that's, that's the business plan right there. Right. And the fact that we have a hundred 15 podcasts, 85 of which are independent podcasters, trusting us enough to guard their show and to grow it is a very humbling experience and a very serious uh, responsibility, right? Because you can't F up their show. You just you can't do it. It's not in the realm of possibility. Now we're actually taking on full networks. So Ars Longa, for example, Industry Pods, Pink Kangaroo, we're their backbone. I mean, they're sitting on all the infrastructure that we've built out and are using our tools and trades and our sales and marketing experiences to grow their networks. We are about to announce, the, the deal is signed, but we, and we've got a whole public campaign about to start. We've signed a, a pretty significant music podcast network out of LA. And essentially, they're outsourcing their 25 shows to us. This will launch in December. This is, to, to, to me, the lasting mark or the, the present mark that we've built for ourselves is a trusted resource for independent podcasters and fledgling podcast networks. And we've got the infrastructure to protect them, grow them, sell for them, market for them. It's just that whole experience has been, and this is not an understatement, otherworldly. I mean, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. And, 
and you know, I mean, the podcast industry is pretty chill. You know, it's like we've called our competitors Gimlet before they were bought, Wondery, who recently got bought, and others. And like, hey, can you give us a half hour, hour? We'll fly up or we'll meet you at this conference. Yeah, man, whatever you need. <laughs> you know, like we'll we'll do it for you. And it's just been that is cool because in the technology trades, you, you rarely do you talk to your competitor. And you're friendly, I would imagine. Right, sometimes. right. But you're not giving them state secrets or like, you know, like how do you do this? And oh, well, let me do it ABC. Now they're not giving you the tactical stuff necessarily, but they're certainly giving you a point north. Like this is the road to travel. Is that a consequence of the rising tide lifting all boats? When you think about the industry of podcasting, I don't actually know the numbers, uh, but anecdotally, it feels like it's grown extraordinarily over the last few years yeah. in terms of adoption and and the number of podcasts and listeners and viewership and, and all these things. Where, where are we today from an industry standpoint? Yeah. I, well, listen, you get about 2.1 million podcasts that have been produced Roughly 600,000, 700,000, which are consistently active in, in, in production. So you got a lot of titles out there that are ghost titles, right? So you got a tsunami of content on that side for sure. Now, the industry will hit about a billion one, billion two in ad revs this year. The fascinating thing is the M&A market far exceeds the actual revenue of the industry. You know, like people, large media companies are so pressured for content development, that they much rather buy these independent groups than do it on their own. They get an immediate catalog and then they've got a sales network, you know, that is far exceeds mine. You know, I, we're just a little group here in Cleveland, Ohio, trying to make a, a, a nickel here or there, but nonetheless, I, I, but I think you're right. I, I think it's, everyone's trying to figure it out, like how to really generate significant revenue. To be quite frank, I thought initially our our biggest issue is going to be content and content has not been the issue. The issue has been how do we really connect in a resonating way on the sales side? We're generating revenue every month. My burn rate is still higher than our revenue. And that was the case with Wondery and Gimlet too. Like I, I, you know, I'm going to them talking about this issue and they're like, dude, we're living it too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, we're not break even. You know, it's, it, it was an interesting peak into how to do it. Now, just recently in the last six, seven months, we've gotten a lot of VCs who've been calling us because we we're, we're, we share everything. So when we, if you're a sales partner, an advertising partner with Evergreen, you're a podcast, you're a partner podcast, we're sending out a bunch of information to you on a weekly basis. You're getting a weekly download report from us, which lists all of our podcasts and what they're doing on a weekly basis. And then on an annual basis. It's a real interesting aggregation of annual and then a monthly download. We have a top 25 list of our own network that we send out. Our top channels we list. And by sharing all this, somehow it's you know seeped out into the ether and all these VCs are calling us. Like you guys have grown, like the growth has been crazy on the download side. Should it be time to talk? And now we're now just recently in the last month or two, we've had a lot of media companies uh, who are knocking on the door, want to send, sign NDAs to talk about, you know, are you worthy to be acquired? And so we've, we've had to craft a vetting list of how we want to go about, you know, are we going to get sold? Do we want to be sold? Are we ready? That's a big question for it. Do we want to lose our independence? 
we've turned down a couple investment offers because one was a valuation issue. Those are pretty easy, you know, and straightforward. Like you're not hitting our you're not hitting our target, you know, in terms of valuation. One was a little bit more friendly, but it really came down to as a team, we just didn't like some of the personality traits. You know, if your financial partners, that's a marriage and that marriage has got to be rock solid because we've all heard horror stories. Oh yeah. Of that board mix and their expectations versus yours. And the truth be told, when we got that last offer, I don't think my team was ready for it. When we sat down with our team and like, this is what venture capital means. We take in a million and a half. They're looking at 10 to 15 times minimum return on that money. Minimum. That means we got to give them back 15 million. It's very expensive money. And how do we do that? Well, to do that, we've got to be around 50 to $60 million in run rate. And I mean, you just see the staff like, holy shit. Like, you know, there's no way we're ready for that. We will be. That's what I love about the team. It's like, mm. we'll get there. You know, but today when that, when that offer came in, we're not. And that I do appreciate from the staff and from Joan. The board is pretty simple. It's Joan and I. And we, we talk just like you and I are talking right now on the podcast about the issues of the day. She's not involved in the day-to-day. So I have to give her a lot of color commentary. And she has extraordinarily detailed questions about the industry, about our personnel, about the marketplace, trends that we're seeing. And we're pretty quick in crafting strategy around that, that we can deploy with the family office capital that she's able to, to provide. It's a finite amount to be sure. So, you know, we, we're, at this point, we've hit every target and beyond, I mean, beyond imagination with the exception of the revenue side of the house, which we have a stake in the game. We're, we're making money. I yeah. didn't like how the sales cycles were working for us. Well, how, how do you make money? How does Evergreen bring, bring cash in the door? Multiple ways. We're not your typical network. Clearly, at the episode level, you're looking at cost per mill, right? And those targets for us are generally between $35 and $50 CPM. And for those who are uninitiated in the world of, of uh, podcasts, it's for every thousand downloads, someone's going to stroke me a check for that amount, say $30. And that's a hard way to make a living, quite frankly. You know, it, it's not content friendly. So we've started to slowly implement two other pricing uh, metrics. One is you can just buy the episode. You know, we got a flat rate. It's like going to Walmart. You know, there's the price and you're going to pay that price for the episode. That's beginning to work a lot better for us as opposed to a cost per mill. Because some of our shows, they may have an audience of, let's say, thirty-five to 40,000 downloads a month. But it's a niche. So that price per episode works better on a niche product than a general pop culture podcast, which is being blasted out to everybody. And then we're playing around now with sponsorship levels. So we've sold recently Microsoft on a sponsorship package. Those are typically larger numbers. They're generally a request of some sort of branding within the tile or you know, the, the podcast canon, be it on its landing page and newsletters, social media mentions and the like. 
I love the sponsorship route and I love the price per episode route. We also are a production house, so we get paid to produce podcasts for others. DBR Media, Chipotle, StoryWorth are some of our more significant clients where we're out crafting podcasts that they will distribute. And we, you know, we love that, that business. That's why we bought this old radio station in downtown Cleveland was that we, we just wanted that studio capacity to grow that side of the business. So those are the primary ways. We also have an in-house marketing group, which from time to time does get inquiries. And we're beginning to build out an audience building product that we can either help the podcast deliver downloads for them through digital ads, or, and I think this is a better strategy, but we're trying out both, to help build your Apple, to get your those s- subscribers in Apple to improve your subscription base, essentially. You know, if you're spending $1,000 to get 500 new subscribers, that, that just on raw numbers is going to project out to 6,000 downloads a year. That's a good underpinning, a decent underpinning for a show. Not great, decent, but we love these two technologies that we're using for download growth and for subscription growth. The download growth, the problem is if, if you don't have a big budget or a consistent budget, it's like a Marvel movie opening up. That first weekend is big money, and then it declines every week thereafter. If you're not you know, improving your spend or consistently having that spend. So we've learned a lot with these audience building tools, and we're slowly beginning to brand them and take those out to market as well. So we, we could have a whole digital ad agency, essentially, as a side business that's helping podcasts like yours find a marketplace, grow their marketplace, or grow their subscription base. When you think about building this this media company, ultimately, there's kind of a, a two-way street where you know both the podcaster is looking for resources, but it sounds like content isn't necessarily the, the bottleneck for, for y'all. How do you curate the content? What is the content creation strategy? You mentioned that also there's there's some original content in-house. There's there's this outside content. How do you identify good content? How do you, how do you build these podcast brands? In the early days, it was Wild West. We would almost take anything, anyone who would talk to us would, yeah, you're on the network. You know, We've changed our behavior quite a bit. Today, we follow a channel strategy. So if you're not in one of our main channels, it's going to be hard to add you onto the network, quite frankly. So, you know, our biggest channels are history, health and wellness, HR tech, which is a super niche, super, super niche. But we've got like five of the top 10 HR tech podcasts in the marketplace, and they deliver a significant audience, believe it or not. Those three channels should hit a million plus in downloads for the year. And we've already kind of adopted some strategies on how to grow the key titles in that. You generally have an anchor title in those channels and you build around it. And that's the strategy. Like I will take a leap of faith on a smaller podcast, Conflicted being a perfect example of, you know, 1,000, 1,500 downloads a month. Love the content, long form history, very detailed. I love history. So it was a natural for me. You know, he's, he's doing 20,000 a month now. And a lot of this has to do with the channel. The channel brought him up and then we identified a strategy for him to grow it. And it wasn't through these audience building tools. It was actually through Facebook. 
which is it's conflicting for me because I'm not the biggest fan of Facebook, but those history groups were perfect mm-hmm. audiences for his podcast. And we decided to market to all these different history groups within Facebook. So that growth from 1500 a month to now he's, he's hitting 20,000 a month in downloads. That's, that's a significant, that's a risk that we, we like to take and we, we're willing to do that. We have purchased other podcasts. We acquired Pit Pass Moto with the understanding that we were slowly over a period of time going to build out the original Pit Pass Moto podcast to Pit Pass Endy, which we launched this year. Next year, we're launching Pit Pass Formula One. Hopefully, next fall, we'll launch NASCAR, you know, Pit Pass NASCAR. We also acquired a pretty significant ownership in 5-Minute News with the same understanding, 5-Minute News, 5-Minute Sports, 5-Minute Business. You got brand extension. Yeah. An interesting thing that started to develop, though, so that HR channel that I mentioned, the three big shows on that channel for us are HCM Tech Report, Chad and Cheese, and The Recruiting Future. So that's about 85% of that channel's downloads are in those three shows. The other 10 shows give you 15%. To help those other 10 shows, we built out in, in Megaphone, which is our hosting distribution platform, you can create playlists that form their own channel and also give you a separate download, IAB compliant download. This is brilliant. And no one's using this technology. So just in the last week, underneath the radar, we've launched three HR niche playlists, HR news, HR interviews, and like an HR analysis show. Like what are the big technology plays in HR that we want to understand? And then we'll assign the episodes underneath that playlist. And just like in the last couple of days, we've got them out to most of the major playlists. I, I see big things for that playlist technology for us, especially in the history space, health and wellness, where we, then we can craft these little playlists underneath and get that download. That's a separate revenue stream for us, right? As opposed to the individual show or the channel. So the strategy has played out much better than I ever thought. And we, we do understand the space and the technology. You know, we, we had what I think most startups do and is that, we, you know, we brought on a, a chief revenue officer who just didn't work out. And that set us back 20 months. And we're trying to play catch up now. We're definitely on the right path. We've tripled our sales pipeline in the last six months. We've improved our technology but the missing link for us right now, I mean, if you were to look at the company, and, and I'll be honest, there are days where we're putting it together with bubble gum and Band-Aids. So that, that's the startup, right? It's like you're moving your division in the field, right? The tank breaks down. We don't have time to fix the tank. we got to keep moving. We'll come back to the tank. Don't worry about the tank. Keep moving forward. We've got to press. And my strategy is pretty simple. We're pressing all the time. Tank breaks down. Jeep breaks down. We'll come back and fix it. But we got to move. Everyone is aligned in that amazingly well. We've got an insanely great team of young people who are moving this company. My two most critical departments, account management and production, are run by two millennials who came into the company to do one thing, did not do well at that one thing, and we moved them to a different seat on the bus. And they blossomed because we finally found that place where they could thrive. So everything in this company has been moving lockstep growth, pressure, content aggregation, with, with the exception of sales, the revenue side. 
like I said, we're generating revenue. It's getting better. We'll, we've doubled over last year. And we're, I think we're starting to figure out the secret sauce, but we just, we just had a great, decent person in a spot that he was not ready for. And sometimes you, you, you know it and you fail to pull the trigger until it's critical. That is the, that's the one mistake that I've made that I just, I, I wrestle with, to be quite frankly with you, Jeffrey. I, and it, we've all done it. Like, we've all had that one person in the startup, like, why, why is he or she still here? And that human thing comes in like, awesome dude, cultural fit. Everyone loved him. Couldn't produce, you know? And then you go back to the initial three things. Well, he's a great culture. This, this. All right, he's not producing. The pressure, we just raised a new round of money. It is exclusively focused on sales and marketing. So I got to get it right. You know, now we're at that pressure point where the analytics are proving you, you've got the right model, right? The content's coming in, the content's growing exponentially. All right, now let's start bagging some dollars. And that's where we're at. I mean, we're, truth be told, we're at a critical junction that, that we're honest about. You know, a lot of startups don't allay that fear, but we'll, we'll put it out there. We're at this point where the revenues have got to catch up with the rest of the firm or otherwise we're, you know, we've got to make that go, no, do, go, no, go decision soon. I don't know what soon means. I know that we've got a commitment for another round. So I think we're good until like 2023, 2024, but that comes sooner rather than later. Right. I mean, you, you really got to start putting some turbo charge onto everything. And so yeah. we're just, we're pining a lot of resources right now into our sales and marketing initiatives to ensure that the company's got growth prospects that merit the rest of the firm. Interesting last point. When we built Evergreen, we wanted to build a brand. We wanted to lead with the brand. And it's fascinating to me as we're getting the phone calls now and the emails and let's meet and let's talk about what you guys are doing. The brand has far exceeded sometimes who we are. Do you understand? Like, People think it's much bigger than what it is. And that's a success, but it's also a warning sign that you got to get caught up, right? <laughs> and it's a, a unique place to be. I've been in a lot of startups that have grown significantly. I think in my first two years at Fit, we tripled in size. It's a much bigger company than, than Evergreen is right now. And so you're, you're holding on to a rocket ship with your fingernails. I've been through that experience. I know what it's like. I know how to manage it, I think. And I think I've got the right team. But now it's all, it's all in strategy deployment. And, and that's, that, that's where we're at. I mean, it's a great place to be. It's a scary place to be. Yeah, that, that existential laden feeling, it is always there. <laughs> it is. And, uh, but I'm, you know, the one thing I can't say, the team has matured into it. When we, as I mentioned earlier, that offer that we got and what it meant, and we were explaining it to them, and that fear that kind of set in their eyes, and then it was like slowly, like, no, we got this. We need some time to figure it out, but we know how to do this. That's a really cool feedback loop from your team, and we always encourage that. Now, it, the, the feedback loop was better pre-COVID, to be quite frank. I'm the only one in the office. We've got an office here in Lakewood that we had. 20 people in. We, we've grown since then, but I'm not in touch with those 20 people like I was on a daily basis before. So it becomes a, a bit more of a challenge, but I think we've got, I think we've got the aces. I mean, it, it's, 
how do we play them? Hopefully we'll figure it out. But you're right, man, that existential fear, that's what keeps me up at night. It's like, man, how do I get the revenue side caught up with the rest of us and do it well, quickly? If you, if you crack that, that code, the, the secret sauce, you know, the, the tens and millions and downloads, the revenue catching up, what is ultimately the impact that you hope to have with the, with the company? I think our, our capital is a bit more patient than a typical venture investment, but the ultimate goal is just the same as a venture firm, which is we're going to exit at some point. I mean, the assets are valuable enough that I think there's enough vultures around that if there's a death cell, you know, that someone would pick up the assets and, and would want to carry them on in some fashion. That's clearly not where we want to go. I, I think we've attracted enough market interest that uh, a sale is probable, but the time frame, you know, I'm really kind of hoping to push it out. Honestly. I would like to have, I would like to have another five to seven year run with this before we decided to to move on. You know, f- f- fortune or failure may intercede and dictate a, a different timeline, but the way we're planning right now is immediately five years. Like, what can we do in the next five to build up what we need to build up and then to eventually sell? Tying it back to Cleveland for a bit, a few few threads I want to pull on, both kind of playing on your your interest in, in history of Cleveland, which will we'll get you to kind of close out. <laughs> but how much of the network do you think about from a geographic focus standpoint versus kind of the industry or topic standpoint, as you've kind of laid it out? How, does geography play into the equation at all in, in terms of your proximity here in Cleveland or, or things of that nature? Very early on when we made the switch from front porch people to Evergreen, we, we did not want to be seen as a Cleveland company. And, and not to be hard on Cleveland, we wanted to be a global company. And like 82% of our downloads come from the United States. And then our next four markets are Great Britain, Australia, Canada, and India. We just signed a deal with GeoSavin out of India. So I think our Indian numbers are going to improve because we're putting our podcast on their on their music platform. So it'll be a slow roll, but we'll eventually have all of our podcasts on the GeoSavin network out of India. And likewise, they're going to give us, I think we're starting off with 10 or 15 Hindi, you know, language-based podcasts that will be reciprocated back to us as we fulfill this obligation in, in our agreement. We've always wanted to be global. I didn't want to get in the trap of just a whole list of just Cleveland-based shows. I didn't want to be the Cleveland Podcast Network. And that is not to belittle any of the podcasts in Cleveland because we love them. And there are some that we have on our, on our network and I'd like to add more, but I didn't want to be known as that, that regional network. You, you, you understand? I didn't want to be geography based. It was mm-hmm. always, we're going to be global. We're going to be big. Our catalogs are going to be expansive and exciting. And the brand was never really geared for the local market. It was geared for, you know, a global marketplace. I'm glad we can do it in Cleveland because we're under the radar. I don't think there's a lot of people know that we exist in Cleveland, but we're producing shows in the UK and Sweden. And, you know, we are getting calls from China and Singapore. And I mean, it's, it's, it is bewildering to me at sometimes, like I sit in my office, like, I mean, I just talked to someone from, you know, you know, China. It just blows my mind. They want to do something with us. That is, um, that is really appealing and exciting for us. 
that we're, we're seeing as a, a global brand. And But from the Cleveland perspective, I hope that someday we get some recognition and especially people who want to work with us and for us in Cleveland. I may have mentioned we bought a building in Cleveland, so we're moving from Lakewood back into the city. It's an old radio station on uh, St. Clair, and it'll give us an expansive resource that we hope is open and moving 24 hours a day, to be quite frank, of people coming in, recording, because we'll have the studio space at that point where we can have multiple studios running at the same time and recording all sorts of interesting things. We've got the technology platform to distribute. I mean, it doesn't matter to us if it's one a day or 10 million a day, we've got the capacity to do it. And now we just got to fulfill it. So I'm glad we're in Cleveland because the expense of building the company has been fairly nominal relative to the coasts or Chicago. We didn't have to move. You know, if you know, there's some discussion with a group in California, like, well, you got to move here. And I, I don't want to move there. I mean, I, you know, I, I love San Francisco and I love the Valley. I can't live there. I just can't. You know, that one hour drive to get to work. My universe from my house to my office is one mile. And if I oh, need yeah. to leave work to go see my kid or do something with my family, I have that flexibility. And that means a lot. You know, Cleveland can offer a lot for a startup. And men more than just startups. I mean, one of the things I, I've, I've been really curious to get your perspective on is when I moved to Cleveland, I moved downtown. And of the things that kind of struck me the most were just kind of the, the beauty and aesthetic of these old historical buildings. And on top of you know what what you're building, uh, I know you are also an author of this kind of lost exploration, lost Cleveland, lost hotels of Cleveland, lost apartment stores, and this is something that has always struck me here in Cleveland. That how do you protect the best parts of Cleveland from making an appearance in your future works? Uh, you know, like how do we how do we protect like what is really I think unique asset and, and strength of the city that I would just want to, I'd love to get your perspective on that. Well, I will say the one, the one thing that has radically changed from my time at the city to today is that they're saving the old buildings and reusing them. So the departments, that's lost department stores, a Cleveland book I just wrote. Most of those department store buildings are being used to this day as either office space or better yet as, as a living space. The May Company, Higby's, Halley's, yeah, the, the Sterling Building, which is where we started Blue Bridge Networks, that was a Sterling Linder department store. And before Sterling Linder, it was the original Higby's Uptown store. So the one thing that I always loved about my job at the city was I could get into these buildings. You know, once I convinced them I wasn't going to find them for anything, you know, there's always <laughs> this hurt on the ownership side. Like, oh, he's going to come in. I'm, I'm not in code. And I was like, Hey, man, I'll be quite frank. I'm not really worried about that. What I really would like to do is see what the building is so that I can I can help from the city perspective of filling that building up. Believe it or not, one of the only groups in, my, my, in the first year, the only group that would really work with me was uh, Playhouse Square. You know, Tom Einhouse was a grizzled vet at that point who had saved a number of the uh, old um, playhouses and and they owned a lot of those buildings. And he was willing to take a risk. He was like, hey, man, we'll give you below market rent and build out if you can get people in. And they were starting to think about what to do with Idea Center. So out of those 35 original tech companies that I brought in, I think 15 ended up in Playhouse Square. I mean, it was like an 
And the rest were kind of split up were warehouse district and some other odd buildings. You know, Playhouse Square was the, the place. And, I, and that's what you need critical mass. That's what Cleveland needs. Listen, just recently, we bought this building in East 26th. But in the last couple of weeks, for whatever reason, I've ended up between East 26th and East 80th for different events. And I end up driving around these neighborhoods. There's so many buildings, empty buildings that merit new life, not just in downtown. I mean, Midtown, St. Clair, Superior. I think it's fair to say the west side of Cleveland far exceeds what's happening on the east side of Cleveland, with maybe the exception of University Circle. I've always thought between Lake and Broadway from East 25th to East 105th, that's the last undiscovered country of Cleveland. This is where we need to get back and raise up that east side of Cleveland through development, housing, get rid of the 30 by 80 lot. That was the norm in Cleveland, Ohio, that a lot of people built two houses on that 30 by 80 lot. You you see a lot in Tremont where you got two houses back to back, you know, double it. I mean, we got space. I mean, we got green space. You know, it's just how you really define how you want to rebuild the city. I will be honest with you. Every time I went out to talk to a company, I'd be like, hey, I just want to be frank with you. I want you to move your company to Cleveland and I will make that happen and I'll do everything I can. And you would hear all the tropes. Well, there's murders. There's drug dealers on East 9th Street. Like, I, listen, I've lived in Cleveland 20 plus years. I've never seen a drug deal go down on East 9th Street, but okay, I, I hear you. You know, I get it. It's, it's, you know, dogs and cats living together, Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. That's the feeling of the periphery of Cleveland. It's not true. It's just not true. Once you beat those tropes, you can't beat Cleveland. Cleveland's got soul. Solon doesn't have soul. Solon soulless. Independence soulless. I'm sorry. They can say whatever they want about it. I've gotten cast arrows in the newspapers and the opinion pages back in the day when I was a bit more relevant than I am today. Didn't care. You know, the city of Cleveland hired me. I was a zealot advocate on behalf of the city of Cleveland. And it's wonderful when, when you look on Twitter, how many more of us today than there were then. There was only a handful of us raising the flag, like move to Cleveland. It's the best thing ever. Once you get here, man, people are like, why did I, why did I start my company in, you know, wherever? I don't know, but we're glad you're here. Cleveland's got a lot to sell. And the next generation, it's going to be in housing on the east side. It's got to be. You know, once you figure out how to build housing on bigger lots, it's going to be a game changer for the city. Because it's going to be a land rush like Oklahoma. And it's just people who want to stake their claim and buy, buy these new homes and this new inventory. I hope it happens. I think politically, you can see some alignment beginning to happen. I think I saw an article today, like, you know, Bib is up nine, nine points in, in the city of Cleveland race. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a big Bib fan, and I, and I hope he wins. And then you got Ronane running for chief executive. Uh, of Cuyahoga County, Renane was the chief of staff when I was at the city. And, you know, he's, then he obviously moved on to University Circle. I mean, University Circle, what he's done there, it's a miracle. It's just unbelievably great. And if you can apply those two guys, you finally have two guys who are serious advocates for the city of Cleveland. You, you have a moment in time where it could be a game changer, where you could start to see population increases, new development, new housing creation. It's all there for the taking. The assets that Cleveland have far outstrip 
most big, even bigger cities than, than, you know, I mean, there's very few cities that can punch in the same weight class as Cleveland. I mean, you got New York and Chicago, maybe LA. Denver doesn't have the same cultural aspects that Cleveland has. I'll be, yeah. And I love Denver. Don't want to piss anyone, any of your listeners <laughs> off in Denver. But I have a deep love affair with the city of Cleveland. It's a hard place sometimes to be sure, but I love it. And uh, it, it fits my personality. I've done everything I, I beyond imagine in, in this city. Everything great in my life has happened in this city. It's it just my, my wife, my kid. The fame, the fortune, the failure, all of it, I would do it all over again uh, and probably in the same way because it's just, um, it's just been a gratifying place to be. And I hope other people feel that way. I do not think you will offend any of our, our dozen of Cleveland Zealot <laughs> listeners here who, sh- who share in the, <laughs> the pride and the, and the struggle of, of Cleveland. But it, 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 there, is, there is an energy. It's you know, just in the, in the time that I've been here, it's, it's changed in, in pretty remarkable ways. Yeah, I agree. Every time I go into the city, I went to the um, the Van Gogh experience immersion on East 72nd. Here you are, all these empty warehouses. You turn on East 72nd, and there's this big building with all this Van Gogh art on the outside. I mean, it's just a pop of energy, man. And the people who are in that building were not from Cleveland. But to bring them into that street, into that building, amazing. And just recently, I went to the Morgan Conservatory, which is over on East 45th, I believe. Just another stunning experience of this oasis in the middle of blight. I mean, it's obviously a challenged neighborhood. It's one of the reasons why we bought this building on East 26. We wanted to be all of the, the three main owners of Evergreen personally bought this building. And we did it because we just wanted to stake our claim in Cleveland. We wanted to be a creative force and a center point for people to use that building 247. You know, you, want, you need to record your podcast at midnight, come in. We'll make it happen. We want to do events, come in. We want to do, we, or hopefully we're, we're kind of planning a summer concert series of podcasts and music. I don't know, if we, obviously we can't do it this year, but hopefully things get better next year. Yeah, well, come over. Let's do it. Like we want to be that creative energy spot in that neighborhood that people start looking around. Like, yeah, well, let's buy this building. Let's do this. I want to bring my business into this area. That's when it gets exciting. You need some pioneers, of course, and I hope that we're going to be those pioneers. Well, in, in the spirit of things under the radar, my uh, closing question for for everyone on the show is for things in Cleveland that. Not necessarily their favorite things, but things that other people may not know about. They're, they're hidden gems. So with that, I, I pose this question to you. Yeah, this is an easy one. I saw this question when we were doing some uh, pre-production work, right? The Saxonheim Hall on Denison is a mind-blowing experience if you haven't been there. It's an old German hall. So that's near West 65th area in Denison. It's the old stockyards for the city of Cleveland. And you can still see the old cattle pens along the street and the buildings with the, the butcher names. It, it's a fascinating, you know, urban archaeology place to drive through, you know, but I've been for years, this is a long time ago, of course, but I've been here about, Oh, the Saxonheim hall, like no one really could explain where it was, but some people had been there. And anyway, one day I was driving, this is like 15 years ago. 
driving down and I ended up on Denison and there was this beautiful old German music hall. It's got two music studios, uh, more like concert halls in there. One small, one a little bigger. I think the owner lives on the top floor, but in the basement is essentially a taco joint. And I went in there, the waitresses are rude. They're mean to you. I think that's their way of saying that they love you, but there's, there's cops in there. There's politicians, there's millennials, there's, you know, people from the suburbs. It's a weird mix, but it's a beautiful mix. You get people from the neighborhood. You'd think there'd be friction, but everyone's in there having a good time, eating some tacos, drinking some beer steins, save for the cops. Saxonheim <laughs> Hall. It was one of the best. It still is one of the best experiences I've had in the city because that shows you what the city can be like if you let it blossom and, and happen. That is a, a wonderful gem to add to the the collage here. Thank you for that one. Sure. Well, Michael, I, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, and telling your your story and uh, sharing about what you're you're building at Evergreen. Jeffrey, I love spending time with entrepreneurs. I really was quite humbled that you invited me on. So now that I'm in the club, yeah, you know, I hope that we we connect more often and we have more conversations. Absolutely, I uh, I look forward to it. If folks have anything they would like to follow up with you about, where is the best place for them to do so? Well, they can they can always email me at mdealoya at evergreenpodcast.com. And my last name is spelled D-E-A-L-O-I-A. And hell, I'll even throw out my cell phone number because I don't care. Uh, 216-212-4067. You know, I'm always happy to meet with, with anyone. I mean, anyone who, who's making things happen a person I want to know, be an artist, philosopher, poet, entrepreneur, politician. I just love spending time with people. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.